David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. So far, in this, in this series, we've looked at mystical encounters with the divine that, in a sense, are individual encounters. Yep. So, in the first session, we looked at Merkava mysticism, people who, through all sorts of meditative techniques and preparations and pursuit of holiness, ascend astrally in a sense in their mind, in their soul, sometimes with full consciousness, they ascend to some kind of ethereal supernal realm where they gaze at the divine chariot. And in the mists of time, we have lost those techniques. We've also lost the preparations that were required. We've lost the status, as we discussed last week, to be able to do that. And what we glean is the literature and almost like the whispers coming down to us of what those uh, experiences entailed and what the implications were for the people that did them. But even in that level, it's almost like just as they are gazing at the divine, we are standing distant from their experiences and gazing at them, gazing at the divine. It doesn't really... They're interesting accounts, but they don't actually affect us. They don't affect us as a people. Uh, meaning that the continuum of Jewish thought is enriched by them, but it's not fundamentally altered by those experiences. In the second uh, talk, we looked at the other kind of a field or dimension of a Jewish mystical thinking, which is dealing with the act of creation. We looked at Sefer Yetzirah last week. And from Sefer Yetzirah, we went on to a different kind of consciousness-altering experience in relation to the divine of people who were able to achieve high, high meditative states through the permutation of letters and the names of God and so on, and even to the point where those permutations and those meditations could actually effect physical changes in them and their environment, whether it's seeing you double, having a light follow you around, all these things. All, but at the end of the day, even they, impressive though they are, they're kind of, we could put them kind of in the category of party tricks. And in fact, maybe that's not so unfair. I don't mean to denigrate magical practices, but we spoke last week about Adabracadabra, right? Abracadabra which actually abracadabra, which is magic tricks. Now, it doesn't mean that these experiences weren't real. It doesn't mean that the phenomena weren't real. I mean, who are we to say? And certainly the people that were documenting these seemed reliable in every other way, but they don't, once again, affect us. What I'm going to talk about today is a mystical encounter with the divine that is impactful on an entire people. That is that this, I want to talk about the mystical shift and the mystical encounter that has affected the whole of Jewish thinking because 
at some point in the Middle Ages, during the 12th and 13th centuries, there was a tremendous shift that happened. And we as a people going through history had profound revelations and encounters that are still being processed and absorbed. And I want to talk about those and I want to talk about what they are in a very, very careful but specific way because you will have heard some of these things but I really want to get to terms with it. We spoke about the fact that in the 13th century Abu Lafi was running around with his letter Mysticism and Meditations and we also spoke about the fact that during that time, or maybe a little before, maybe more in the 12th century, there were a group of mystics that were pushing things forward in their own way in uh, Germany, using things that we called, for example, Selem mysticism. We spoke about that, kind of trying to gaze at the different faces of the divine, starting with one's own face, the reflection of the divine face and so on and right up to angels and the seat of glory and uh, and eventually at some point whatever the face of the divine means and we looked at that as you can imagine and this will not come as a shock to you Jewish ideas tend to spread because Jews tend to talk and Jews tend to travel and they chat with one another but as they do that, one of the ways in which this kind of thinking evolves, and especially when it becomes combined with people that are becoming more and more keen to try various meditations and various thoughts, is that we uh, develop a concept that first really is discussed intensively in this period in Jewish mystical literature, but is going to we're going to be discussing it much, much later, perhaps even next week, but I'm going to highlight it now. And it's a very, very important concept, which is the concept of Dvekut. Dvekut. Is anybody familiar with the term dvekut? Cleaving, coming close to God. I can't remember what the name of it is, but there's a certain word that's used to describe words that have opposite meanings within them. Yeah? Anyone familiar with that? There's this word, it's, it'll come to me later. Where you have one word, but it can mean two things, but those two things are opposite. So cleaving, you can cleave something to render it asunder, or cleaving means to bring things together. It's interesting the word cleaving that you said is one of those words. Dve, but that's not dvekut. Dvekut is related to the word devek. Davak, even in modern Hebrew, devek means glue. And dvekut means cleaving in the sense that you mentioned, but cleaving in the sense of really, really adhering and becoming extreme, embracing and becoming ex extremely close, almost to the point of merger. 
dveikut becomes a very big concept. It is no longer it is no longer simply a case of the humble individual doing things in order to try and apprehend the divine experience, but we want to be a part of it. We want to cleave to the divine. And the way that started evolving in the Middle Ages was a series of, and we're not going into this in detail because it's not quite where I'm going to talk about tonight, today, but it involves new meditation practices where the person meditating imagines that they are already in a state where they are actually already absorbed into the divine. It's not a thing that you can do immediately, obviously. You focus on this in various theurgic acts there are certain acts that you do in the course of your daily life that lend themselves to a cleaving to the divine. What would be clearly one of those acts would be prayer. Prayer. So during prayer, you're not just praying in the synagogue inside yourself you are actually completely in the presence of the divine but not just simply in the presence you actually merge in the course of your deep concentrations with the divine and the other theurgic act very very similar to prayer in the minds of Kabbalists is of course Sex. Sounds good. <laughs> I knew I came to this class with it. The sexual act is probably the most intensely um, concentrated opportunity for people to get close to the divine and enact, in a sense the whole process of the divine, if during the sexual act you, your mind is at a highly purified state, then you see the entire act in cosmic and divine terms. Remember, remember that the Middle Ages is still dealing with the basic Galen physiology that came from the ancient world. Yeah? which by the time you get through early medieval philosophy, a shtickle Aristotle and a bit of Plotinus, but also you're starting to get a few of the thinkers of the medieval rationalists who are attempting to combine all these systems, the male provides the form and the female provides the substance. Yeah. The male provides the form, the female provides the substance. This is how it was perceived. Those of you who have not studied medieval philosophy may might find that a little what we might what they might have called in those days a stickle confusing. <laughs> so does everybody understand the distinction between form and matter? 
So I'm getting a yes, but I'm getting... Right, so in the Middle Ages, one of the major philosophical ideas that emerged from Neoplatonism and other strands of thought is that everything is composed of form and matter. Yeah? I don't care how slow we go with this. If what I need to explain to you tonight spills over into next week and we have to take two classes to go through all of this, I think it'll be worth it because I really need us to understand this. Everything in the world is composed of form and matter. If you want the Hebrew terms for that, it is tsura and chomer. Chomer is matter or substance and tsura. But don't worry too much about that. Let's just stay with form and matter. How does that distinction come about? Well, that distinction really we owe to our good buddies, Plato and Aristotle, going all the way back to Greek thought. Plato's idea of the realm of ideal forms. This reality, this reality is kind of like a pluralistic corrupt version of the realm of ideal forms. Remember that Plato, who's read Plato? Plato, what's Plato's most famous book? The Republic. And in the Republic, Plato gives us his famous, famous analogy of the cave. In the cave, we are all sitting around the cave. Let's imagine we're even chained to the walls. Yeah, for those of you who are into that sort of thing. And we, it's dark in the cave, but what's happening is there's a fire somewhere out there. But the only things that we really see are the shadows of things passing by the front of the cave whose shadow is projected onto the walls of the cave. We don't really, really get an apprehension of what's outside the cave, only by way of reflection. What's outside the cave, in this metaphor, is the realm of ideal forms. That's the true reality. And that's the difference, I mean, between Plato and Aristotle. Plato wants us to stand up, like mentioned, and go outside and have a look. Try and contemplate the realm of ideal forms. For every single thing you see here, there is an ideal form of which what you see is just an, a, a, a replica in some corrupted or imperfect form. In the realm of ideal forms, there is this ideal form of a horse. There's an ideal form of a table. There's an ideal form of whatever. And the, obviously that marks the massive conceptual difference between Plato and Aristotle because Aristotle is going, you don't need to go out of the cave. Look around you in this world, investigate this world, explore this world, categorize this world, that's the important one, create a taxonomy of things and through understanding this natural reality, you will understand universal forms. You will extrapolate them from seeing what is involved in this reality. So, in a very, very basic sense, Aristotle, who becomes the cornerstone 
of rational thinking in Middle Ages, which is going to go on to be evolved into Western science, is an exploration into nature. Plato, who is going to call really the, the, the foundation of, of all metaphysical thinking in the West, is a movement away from this reality towards a realm of ideal forms. Everybody follow that? Now, that's a very, very basic distinction. But you can take that distinction to dinner parties and you'll be fine. <laughs> By the time you get to the Middle Ages, so we're already, you know, the high scholastic Middle Ages were already 1,500 years after Plato and Aristotle. We have a, a very evolved neoplatonic thinking about how the world comes about. Many people have tried to weld the two Aristotelian and Platonic systems together, but in the High Middle Ages, it's once again going through a process of separating those two ideas out. But Neoplatonic thinking realizes that everything in the world contains two fundamental elements, including humans, a form and matter. Those two things are separate, but they need to be joined in order to create anything that you encounter in this reality. If we were to project that back on the story of creation, God provides the form and the materia prima, as Aristotle might have put it, the primordial matter was possibly already here. This is one, this is, don't, don't, don't clench your sphincter. This is one of the issues that Maimonides has to deal with because Maimonides wants to tell you that everything, including matter, was created from nothing by God. So that's a whole other issue. And if we were, this was a course on medieval Jewish philosophy, we would deal with that. But these are some of the issues. Next, Next please, God. So form and matter. So the basic idea was that during sexual intercourse the male provides the form I'm talking about intercourse that leads to conception the male provides the form the female provides the matter. The form is concentrated in a physical sense in semen in sperm, but sperm does not originate from where we think it now originates. I'm looking around the room to see whether people would actually have an answer to that. <laughs> I, my understanding is that it originates sperm, according to contemporary medicine, uh, originates in the testes. Yes? Have I got that wrong? They haven't changed that since I was at school? Good. <laughs> but not according to medieval philosophers. Where does sperm originate? In the brain. In the brain. That's why it's white. And it travels down the spine. Gets heated and fermented and cooked in the testicles because when it comes down from the brain it's in a very very refined form why does it come down from the brain 
because it's form and it therefore comes down from the heart it comes actually from the mind that's why they strongly believe that what you're thinking about during intercourse is going to have a tremendous effect on the child that you produce when we talk when they talk in books in the middle ages whether they are theological texts or even medical texts when they talk about the fact that what you're thinking about during intercourse affects the child they're not simply playing with ideas that's what they really mean yeah if a man's thinking about his neighbor's wife yeah or if the woman is thinking about the neighbor then the child's going to look like that <laughs> impure thoughts lead to impure children now that's just a very very basic kind of ascetic grounding for it but those ideas about encountering the divine in sexuality because sexuality then becomes the ultimate metaphor for divine encounter when a couple creates a child it's the same as when God creates the world yeah and that idea is never gone away it's still with us that idea even though we have evolved in our medical understanding of what happens Kabbalists will still tell you that the ultimate origin of the sperm is still in the mind in ways that we don't yet understand the more you clarify your entire body become more spiritual in your body and your mind then the higher the level will be you can imagine therefore when we spoke about the concept that you were saying the concept of and we touched on this last week to quote an unfortunate pun the notion of masturbation and that is you can understand how damaging that would be in the eyes of the capitalists form is to be imprinted in matter yeah it also and i don't want to this is this is not a sex ed class because I'm looking around the room and none of us really need that but uh, <laughs> you can understand why also in Kabbalistic literature it becomes very important for uh, what they call female conception not forgetting it oh, we're having difficulty translating the word the, the word they use for male is zriah which is the act of sowing yeah sowing seeds but they use the same verb for women now most contemporary uh, translators and commentators on these medieval texts understand that to mean female sexual climax which is a kind of a very, very interesting thing because no one else was really talking about that in the Middle Ages. It's very important that that precedes the male ejaculation because you need the materia prima in order to impress the form. It doesn't mean that it's not going to happen if you don't achieve the sexual climax of the feminine prior to the male but it's not going to be as ideal. Everybody follow that? Yeah. Completely. Completely. Not a, not, I'm, giving you, I'm giving you a very, very filtered summary of the material that I have waded through. 
you should see what they talk about what you, the types of children that emerge from different sexual positions. I would love to give a separate talk entirely on this. <laughs> we'll see whether we get nobody turning up or everybody, but uh, it's, re it's, remarkable, it's remarkable material. It's remarkable material. Now, but that's not what I, we really talk about. I'm just trying to say that there then develops this idea of dvekut, dvekut, which is kind of like a cleaving, almost like you become yourself a divine channel. In other words, the divine energy is flowing through you and during prayer and during sexual congress, both of which are seen very, 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 very similarly. Yeah? When did that happen? Okay, thank you, for, thank you for letting me know. Probably there's a cosmic reason behind that. I can tell you, yeah. What's the relationship between Christian mysticism and Jewish mysticism? I will, I'll, t I'll touch on that because we can't go into that. If you knew what I actually really need to talk about today, you would, you would realize that I can't go into any of this. But... Um, very, very different because they're coming from different theological drives. But where there are points of contact, if you look at, for example, of, uh, you know, isn't Teresa of Avila and so on, the points of contact, a lot of them have to do with what we might call, what I talked about last week, the idea of unio mystica. That is that a kind of mystic experience that you become, in a sense, ecstatically absorbed into the divine. And we can see that in some of the paintings and the pictures. Yeah? The, and as, as people undergo what might be understood to be a type of passion experience. Yeah? But most of those emerge from ascetic practices. That is a withdrawal from nature. Uh, and or from uh, corporeal engagement. And we saw people who've tried that in the Jewish tradition as well, through fasting and whatever. But now, in the 11th, 12th, and the 12th, 13th century, what we're seeing from the 11th to the 13th in uh, Germany and Spain, and particularly in southern France, is an attempt to integrate mystical experience uh, and an awareness of divine, of the closeness of divine reality into very good into the very that very corporeality, yeah? Now, you were going to say something quickly or not? I was no. asking the idea of the parents having an imperfect child. Yes. Is this prior to Kabbalah? I'm just thinking because... I mean, no, 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 the, well... No, that particular one about the child, because I'm in, in the... Yes, 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 the, uh, yes, that is already in the, that idea is already in the Talmud. That idea is already in the Talmud, that how you perform uh, sexual relations has an effect on your progeny. But it's brought out in a different kind of level. In the Talmud, it's almost like, when you read it, it's almost like these guys are... I don't want to say the word... I want to say the word lightly, the word superstition. It reads like that. But when you're reading it hundreds of years later in Kabbalistic thought, there is an entire cosmic system behind it. Now... Once we have dvekut mysticism, 
becoming prevalent and there are many books and techniques, some of which still survive till this day. I'm going, those of you who are interested in that kind of thing, I'm going to recommend a book for you. I don't recommend books very often. But sometimes on a topic there are books that are written that are outstanding. And I would uh, recommend to you a book that I have had for a long, long time. And I have recommended it to quite a number of people. I think it is more than just a scholarly work on a subject. It is itself something approaching a holy book. And it was written by a remarkable individual that some of you will have heard of. I'm talking about a 20th century book in English, so everyone can relax. Uh, some of you will have heard of Rabbi Arya Kaplan. So Arya Kaplan's book, Meditation and Kabbalah, is outstanding. It really is an amazing book. Read it, if when you read it, Read it carefully and in chunks. Yep, there's a... Sorry? K. Aria. A-R-Y-E-H. K-A-P-L-A-N. Yeah? He's written many books. He's got a translation of the Sefer Yitzirah. He's got a translation this and that. But that book, Meditation and Kabbalah, if you're serious about investigating this subject, that's a primer. The other thing, I mean, obviously, obviously, if you want to understand in a scholarly sense the context of anything we're talking about, the historical and scholarly context, sorry, then you read Shalom. Yeah? Everybody familiar with that? Gershom Shalom. S-C-H-O-L-E-M. Shalom, if, 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 if you have, if you... I don't, know how, I, don't know, I don't know how emphatically to put this, but there's no real movement of awareness in the field of Jewish mysticism from the 20th century onwards, in other words, about the whole field, without reading Sholem's major trends in Jewish mysticism, which came out in the 1940s and it's obviously gone through many reprints, and you can imagine, in the 70 or 80 years since then, a lot of people have revised his work, but his work is the grounding of all scholarly discourse of the last century in this field. And the reason for that is because he lays out the context of everything. You must understand the context of what you're looking at. Now, it doesn't matter if Sholem was a chazafressing apicurus. All of his sources are absolutely kosher. Yeah? When he tells you he's seen something, he's seen it. When he talks about things, and he starts to put it together intellectually. Not everybody agrees with him, and you don't have to agree with him. Sholem has written things that I've written papers disagreeing with, but that irrespective of the fact that he defines the major context from that field. It came out of the 19th century as a whole big cholent, and he put the whole thing in order. So read major trends in Jewish mysticism. Yeah? Now, 
But on the subject that we, uh, these delicate subjects, Arya Kaplan is outstanding. He's obviously not a chazafreza, the very holy rabbi, and he was also a physicist, extremely interesting person, and tragically passed away very young, but uh, an amazing writer. Okay. Yes. You're saying uh, prayer, of course, is another way of, of, of leaving. Yeah. Why, why did this only become more concentrated in the 12th and 13th century? Because, but, because, because, oh, okay, 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 okay. Okay, 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 okay. Um, remember I said that, I remember I said last week that I wanted to start with maybe a little different definition of mysticism each week, and I didn't do that today. But I noticed that um, Moshe Idel, anyone heard of Moshe Idel? I mentioned Moshe Idel. Moshe Idel is a contemporary, retired for the most part, but... Uh, not that old. I mean, he's only in his early. Uh, he'd be about. He'd be in his early seventies. But he is probably the most. Um, he, he is the biggest uh, professor, uh, academic of Jewish studies today, of 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 Kabbalistic study. He is the inheritor, if you like, from Shalom. Uh, Idel makes a distinction between what he calls, and I found this distinction very confusing because. He, um, he makes a distinction between anabatic and catabatic mysticism. Anyone familiar with the terms anabatic and catabatic? Well, bizarrely, those terms are taken from meteorology. Anabatic is a wind that goes up and catabatic is a wind that comes down. So there are two forms of divine encounter that Jewish sources seem to be indicating. One is a, an ascent where we ascend and we perceive the divine, a broad range of experiences and techniques and outcomes, whether we are ascending individually or whether we are ascending as a, globally. And the other is catabatic where a mystical experience based on the idea that the divine descends. That's Christianity. But it's not just Christianity. There are also many, many aspects of Jewish thought that indicate the divine descending. And it's not just about the divine descending into this world. It's about any form of descent for the sake of mystical encounter or outcome. For example, if we were to pick from a totally different example in Jewish history, Shabtai Tzvi's conversion to Islam, an example of catabatic mysticism. He went into Islam to redeem the sparks. It was a mystical mission of descent. Yeah? So, in a sense... There comes the idea that the presence of God can be drawn down into this world by the right kind of theurgic behavior. That is, if you pray in the right way, or you have sex in the right way, or you do the mitzvot in the right way, 
prayer and sex are both mitzvot, but all other mitzvot, that you draw down divine energy into this world. Katabatic mysticism is the underlying mystical approach of Hasidism, for example. One of them. One of them. But Kabbalistic thinking starts to understand that we can do this. Everybody follow? That's only answering your question, but I'm still moving on. This is, I haven't even completed my introduction to the material I need to do. Now this Dveikut mysticism eventually becomes also concentrated in various specific thought exercises, one of which seems to be that a person gets into a state where they imagine themselves as a being of light. You become light. Through which you experience various mystical encounters as part of your unbearable lightness of being. Now, all of which is a shtickle ironic. Because the first person that we really identify as a Kabbalist, and Kabbalah is something a little bit specific within the broad stream of Jewish mysticism. Some people think that Jewish mysticism is Kabbalah, that those two words are equated, but not really. Jewish mystical thinking is an exercise that's thousands of years old, as we have seen. But the specific project that we call Kabbalah is only about a thousand years old, maybe a little less. Everybody follow? It arises in the 11th and 12th centuries and develops from there. And it has significant identifying features. What I want to talk about today is I want to talk about the Kabbalistic revolution that happens in the Middle Ages as an embodiment of a divine revelation and encounter that the whole of the Jewish people have that affects their entire consciousness and thinking about God. And that is a process that goes right up to today. So we need to address that. We're no longer involved with individuals going upstairs and having a look. We're now talking about... And that... That movement, the first that we can pinpoint geographically where the ideas that are going to come to characterize Kabbalah, the first place that we can recognize that they are identifiable is where? Not Spain. In Provence. In Provence in the south of France. Because Provence, during the 12th century, was a hotbed of Jewish spirituality. It was a great seat of learning, legalistic learning, philosophical learning, and also mystical learning. We know for a fact that the great rabbi 
that was living in Provence was by Avraham ben David Poskieris, who we know as, I'm not putting these names on the board, I'm not, they're not on the notes, I'm just telling you, if you write these names down, you will go mad and you will distract yourself. I'll tell you the names that you need to know. In any event, hopefully they'll be on this sheet, or at least on the first two lines of this sheet, depending on what we get through. But, Rav Avraham ben David is known as the Ravid. He is a very, very big figure. And the Ravid made his, became very famous. One of the reasons he became famous is because he wrote a series of critical glosses on the work of Maimonides. The Ravid has a son called Yitzchak who we know as Yitzchak Saginahor. Does anybody know the meaning of the term Saginahor? It's sometimes applied to people in Jewish history and elsewhere. Saginahor is an Aramaic term meaning of much light. And we understand when that, what that term means. It is a euphemism for meaning that the person is blind. That's why Yitzchak Saginahor is otherwise known in history as Isaac the Blind. Now, despite being blind, and despite the fact that he's living at a time where mystical thinking has reached the apex of light mysticism, and that's the incredible thing, because as I said, people had started deeply contemplating about the concept of light he becomes, in a sense, the father of what is going to become the Kabbalistic tradition. Now, we do not know if he is the author of the first famous text on Kabbalah, but he's very, very close to it. This text appears to have emerged in Provence. It may have German elements based in it, but it is regarded by all scholars as the first identifiable book of what we call Kabbalah, and I'll explain why that is very, very shortly. What is that book? What is the book? So we're still a hundred years from the Zohar. The Zohar is a, a century later hyper-development of the ideas contained in this book, and this book is known as who said that? Very good. It's the Bahir. Who's heard of the Bahir? Well, I can tell you that uh, the Bahir... Now, so some people, that's all they've heard of. Because if you, some people walk into the Bahir and they never walk out. The Bahir is a book that could absorb your entire mystical project if you want. But the Bahir is just the beginning of the journey of Kabbalah. But it's not a book that's ever gone away or not, or not been of, uh, of value. Now, just before the break, I'm going to talk for a few minutes about the fundamental characteristic of Kabbalistic thinking, of the revelation and encounter with the divine that the Bahir talks about. We do not know, I'll stress this again, we do not know if Isaac the Blind and his circle 
are uniquely responsible for the Bahir, if they wrote it in some way or if they somehow put it together, but they are certainly very closely aligned with it because the Bahir first appears in Provence in the middle of the 12th century, right at the time that his circle is up and running. And the ideas that Isaac the Blind is talking about elsewhere match the defining characteristics of the Bahir, but we do not know if the Bahir is from him. The Bahir, of course, <laughs> of itself, does not claim to be the product of the 12th century, Provence. The Bahir is self-ascribed to a much older figure. And that is, it purports to be the teachings of Rabbi Nechunya ben Hakana. Who is Rabbi Nechunya ben Hakana? He was the subject, if you like, or the hero of one of the great um, chariot ascent descriptions written by his student Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha, who I spoke about in the first talk, and when they, that one where they all sat around and Nechunya ben Akana did the ascent and told them they had to be careful because they could have got killed in that process. Remember that? That's Nechunya ben Akana, the greatest mystic at the end of the Second Temple period and the generation following. He is the attributed author of the Sefer Bahir, but as most scholars would tell you, it does not seem likely that he was the author. It looks like it was composed sometime much closer to the 12th century. And it's, uh, look, look, I, I, I'm familiar with scholars today who are at the cutting edge of trying to work out the origins of the Bahir. So it's very complex. It seems to be based on various manuscript traditions that come from, some from Germany, some from uh, maybe even the land of Israel or whatever, but it's a compilation, but it appeared in Provence. But the characteristic ideas of the Bahir, the Bahir is the first text that contains what is going to become the most identifying feature of Kabbalistic literature, which is the concept, and I can already see what we're going to be doing after the break, because <laughs> I don't have much more time other than to announce this concept. And some of you who've heard of this concept before are going to go, oh no, once again, I'm going to have my mind bashed against the wall trying to understand what this is about, but we're going to take it slow and we're going to process it. But the Bahir is really the first text that gives us the Kabbalistic understanding of the Ten Sfirot. Who has heard of the Ten Sfirot? Very good. Obviously, you have all heard of the Ten Sfirot because last week I spoke about the Ten Sfirot in the context of Sefi Yetzira. Sefi Yetzira starts by telling you there are 32 paths of wisdom. Yeah? There are 32 paths of wisdom. Ten Sfirot and 22 letters. But in the context of Sefi Yetzira, Sfirot are... We don't know what they are, but they're numbers. Because the Sefer Yitzir is dealing with number and letter mysticism. Following? But the ten Sfirot of Kabbalah, as we start to see from the book Bahir, 
are something else completely. Naturally, when Kabbalists go back to Sefi Yitzira, they go, oh no, those ten spherot are these ten spherot, but they're not. Kabbalah does something completely different because we are on the other side of a Neoplatonic thought revolution. That thought revolution is a full-on, a full-on invasion of Jewish mystical thinking by Neoplatonism at the hands of some very brilliant iconic figures in Jewish thought like Shlomo Ibn Gavirol and others who were deeply inside Neoplatonic thought. Now, some of you are sitting and going, David, what is Neoplatonic thought? I have not stuck to my notes at all for this class. So I'm just, we're just going, because I'm actually reading people's eyes and I'm only going as far as people can understand. We spoke about Platonic thought, yeah? What is ne what are the identifying features of Neoplatonic thought? False. Well, obviously new, sorry? New, evolved, like Platonic thought, but not quite Platonic thought, because it's taking it in a new direction. So Plato told us, Plato told us that there's an ideal realm of forms, yeah? And then there's this, this pluralistic corrupt reality, which is only a pale and not that brilliant perfection, uh, reflection of the realm of ideal forms. But for Plato, there's no bridge. Plato doesn't tell us what the bridge is between those two. So in the hundreds of years following Platonic thinking, because you had Middle Platonism and then Late Platonism and then Neoplatonism, as you can imagine, every couple of hundred years, there's an entire intellectual shift. Remember that from Plato to the era we're talking about, it's 1500, it's one and a half millennia. Middle Platonism, for example, especially when mixed with the Shtickle Stoicism and other things, emerges in Jewish thought with Philo's idea of the Logos. Yeah? The Logos is the bridge. The embodied divine word. That didn't take off in Judaism so much as it took off in Christianity, which is why the book of John starts with, in the beginning was the word. And they thought, ah, oh, the Logos, that's Christ, fantastic, let's go with that, Manang. And the rabbis went, meh. <laughs> but by the time Neoplatonism re-emerges in Islamic thought and so on, and forces its way into Jewish thinking, It has some very, very interesting effects. Neoplatonism, as opposed to Middle Platonism, Neoplatonism emerges with this idea that bridges the higher and lower realms through the concept of emanation. There is a series of gradations and emanated steps from the divine reality because it was very easy for religious thinkers to bring in Plato because the realm of ideal forms is what? Heaven. And remember that in Plato's Republic what sits at the top, what sits at the apex of the realm of ideal forms, which is all a hierarchy, what sits at the absolute apex of that for Plato is the concept of the good. 
So for religions, they're going, fantasticos. The good, that's God. The realm of ideal forms, that's heaven. Now we have to work out how we bridge it down to this reality. There are a series of emanations. God emanates forms that are progressively more dark, corporeal, less light to the point, where, concealed light to the point where the corporeal and the physical overtakes. Yeah? Emanationism comes into Jewish thought and so the picture of the ten Sfirot that emerges in the 12th, century, 12th and, and 13th centuries in Provence and later in Girona and Spain relies on this concept of emanation. The ten Sfirot are no longer simply numbers. They are emanated creative potentialities of the divine. Now, that sounds like a big, inexplicable, mystical phrase. And I'm going to come back and we're going to unpack it. If we do only do one thing today, we are going to understand the ten Sfirot because that way we will have understood the essential identifying feature of Kabbalah, of the thought revolution that happens in the 12th and 13th centuries because we need to understand that in order to understand the mind-bending thought revolution that happens in the 16th as a result of an encounter but you can't understand the 16th century revolution in Jewish mystical thinking unless you first understand what happened in the 12th and 13th centuries. We need to understand the Ten Sfirot. We're going to take a break. Let's just break for seven or eight minutes. We'll come back and I've got to tell you that I am only two or three lines into these notes. <laughs> this concept that we spoke about, that some of you appear to show interest in, the idea that um, the thoughts that we have uh, during a sexual intercourse affect the psychological, as well as potentially even physical, makeup of the children that emerge from those sexual acts Science has not exactly disproved that. In other words, the mystical medieval link between the whole person as a, th as a thinking and dynamically intellectual as well as physical being, because we are a composite of mind and body, has never really been disproven. It sounds far-fetched to our modern mind, but like so many things, you never really know. It always, the Kabbalists always tell us that it always pays to be authentic in everything we do and to be as pure and as holy as we can in everything we do. Sex is seen as holy. In the sexual act, and I'll say this because it will come back a little later to be referred to in a way that you probably won't understand why I'm mentioning this now, but it will come back. And that is when we talked about uh, the merging of uh, form and matter, this made a lot of sense because the male contribution is white and the female contribution is red. 
matter is represented by the color red. Form is represented by the color white. We talked a little bit last week about meditation on colors and some of that material is going to come back and be subsumed into the whole umbrella of the Sfirot and of Kabbalah. We don't have a lot of documentation of people going, oh, woe is me, I've got a horrible child, I must have done something wrong. We don't have that. Most of the literature seems to be, on this topic, seems to be by way of admonition and warning. Be very, very careful about this, because this will have an effect. Uh, and or it's telling you, not so much about yourself or about, well, it's, it's telling you, if you see a person like that, then this is how we could explain it. Yeah? And let me just add a footnote to that. I don't want to get into this topic too deep because it's absolutely fascinating and there's a lot of literature on it. But I, I, you need to be aware that in terms of Jewish religious life, yeah? If you're having sex and you're thinking about someone other than the person that you're with, yeah? That's not specifically a sin. It would be a sin to go and have a sexual encounter with that other person, but it's not necessarily a sin to have that in your mind. But the Kabbalists are not looking at the technical sins. They're looking at cosmic effects. They see, they are talking to people that are striving to be as emulational of the divine. They're talking to people that are trying to aspire to dvekut. That means in everything they do, in every act that they do with their bodies and their minds and their life, they are trying to be a pure conduit of the divine and to cleave to the divine. They are living, in a sense, in a fully realized, super-conscious divine world. Yeah? Now, that's, and, and in that world, everything is as it should be until some anti-Semite comes along and whacks them on the head. That's not how it should be. But apart from that in, you know, condition of, terrible condition of exile, their personal life is conducted like that. All right, so obviously speaking at a very, very specific level. But I need to talk about the Svirot. The Ten Svirot. Shalom defines the Ten Svirot as kind of, in an attempt to define them, which is very difficult, as creative modalities. Now what that means is this. I'm going to give you a handout, but before I give you the handout, I'm going to draw this with you on the board so you can see it as I do it. God emanates, and when I say the word emanate, you have to understand that the word emanate itself is a massively complex field that contains millions of words to try and explain what emanate means. But we are contracting all of that by just using the word emanate. But know that that is a whole doorway into a universe of thought. But God emanates 10 creative modalities 
by which to effect the realization of anything. To effect the realization of anything. Everything in perceived reality is comprised or comes into being from God by means of ten emanated potentialities of creation. Here's what they look like. The very first, but it's, before we even get to the dynamic creative part, we somehow need to look at these spherot statically and then see how they engage dynamically. Some of you are looking at me like you don't understand what I mean and that's okay because I haven't done it yet. I'm just saying that first of all we need to look at them statically but these are not static. They are not monodimensional either. But we somehow have to represent them so this is how we're going to represent them. The very first of those emanated divine powers or beings is the Sphira of Keter. What is the meaning of Keter? Crown. Keter means a crown. Now, I don't want to translate these words on the board because we don't know, because that would be a mistake. If you want to learn Ugabuga Kabbalah, <laughs> then you can go to Madonna and all her Chaveirim. <laughs> but I'm going to teach you Kabbalah as it's taught, and I'm going to, even the small amount that we're going to touch upon, just to learn about the Ten Sfirot. This is, we are learning about a mystical encounter that the entire intellectual stratum of the entire Jewish world has undergone in the last few hundred years in its mystical thinking. And we're just looking at one aspect of it. But you cannot translate words. You've got to know what they mean, but to translate them is already to immediately rob them of their infinite symbolism. The word keter is a Hebrew word. I'm happy to write them in, translation, in transliteration. It means crown. But in fact, if I was to do this properly in English, I would write it like this. The capital letters represent consonants. Yeah? Put up your hand again if you know a little bit of Hebrew enough to read it. I'm only doing this with this as an example, but this is how that would look in Hebrew. Yeah? And they're the consonants. Those of you who clench your sphincter and go, what, there's no vowels, should know you don't need vowels in Hebrew. The vowels are a very, very late invention and they're only to help people read words that they don't know what they are. But if you know what the word is, you don't need the vowels. Yes, we have these little vowels here so that we know it goes keter, but anyone who knows that word knows it can't be read any other way. It's keter. Yep. So I'll put the vowels in lower letters, but the caps indicate the, the, uh, the consonants in Hebrew. Hebrew letters are all consonants. Everybody follow? Good. So keter is the first sphira, and keter means crown, and that is a very, very, very close emanation. Now, the number 10 had been important in Jewish thought for quite a while. Even in the attempt of Maimonides to try and 
synthesize Aristotelian thought with Jewish thought, we see the concept of ten divine kind of intellectual causes being emanated. Maimonides is not a Kabbalist, but it's all influential upon thinking. Besides which, these guys are developing this system completely independently of Maimonides. Maimonides is only about 30 or 40 years old when the Bahir comes out. So they are developed independently. But Keter is the crown. And it kind of it kind of sits almost some 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 Kabbalistic literature even wants to identify Keter with the essential divine itself. Later Kabbalists come along and go, no, 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 no. Keter is an emanation. We'll look at Keter in a moment. Keter represents will. It's just the will to create. Yeah? That's what it but 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 you've got to understand, when I say Keter represents the will to create. That's not something that necessarily would have been explicated in the 12th century by the people developing the system of the sphere or revealing the system of the spherot. That could be something that comes hundreds of years later as they try to understand what Keter is in the creative process. Follow? It's a schochmah. I mean, I mean the, 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 the wisdom of the Kabbalah is a wisdom, but it's also in a sense a science. It is attempting to understand the whole relationship between the divine and the world. How can we bridge that gap that we spoke about last week, the abyss? What does God look like? What is God, how is God manifest? How is the divine manifest? Divine is only comprehended through the creations that emerge. And how are things created? So we start with Keter. But it does represent will. Following which, when I do H with a dot, when I do H with a dot, that's not a hey, it's a chet. Yeah? Chochmah. What is the meaning of the Hebrew word chochmah? Now, people who translate chochmah as wisdom are not incorrect. But they are missing out on the entire Kabbalistic power of the word Chochmah. And I'll show you that in just two seconds and I will completely obliterate your minds with confusion. And then we will return to the Tenth Sphere. But I just want to prove this point why you can't have to be very careful translating these. The real translation of Chochmah is Chochmah. <laughs> We talk about Chochmah because it is so much more than just the English word wisdom. Yes, Chochmah means wisdom. Chochmah means science. No. Not so much knowledge. But in Hebrew, Chochmah is written, as you know, Azoi. Yes? This is really composed of two words. Switching these round, it equals koach, power. Koach is power. Ma, what? The power of what? Ma, ma. 
equals 45 in numeric value. 45 equals a dumb. And that then equals something else that I can't show you at the moment. There's an entire equation that comes out of Chokhmah. Not cleverly worked out later, but actually inherent in the whole Kabbalistic concept of Chokhmah. But the power of, man. The power of Adam, not man, Adam. Adam is the human. But, but, but it's not the human. It's not the human yet. It's not the human yet. But most people translate Chokhmah as wisdom, and it often refers to the initial spark or flash or spark of creation, of creating anything. Yeah? There is so much. You have to understand the, 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 uh, the walls of the dam are only just holding back the floodwaters that come into my mind when I talk about this stuff. You have to understand, I need to very, very carefully filter it because every single thing is a symbol to everything else. So we have to stay in the pathway just for now. Chokhmah, we'll call it wisdom, and it represents an initial flash. You, maybe some people might want to call it inspiration. I don't know, maybe inspiration belongs in Keter. But we try to bring this down to the creative process. People try and find ways in which to understand these things. But at the moment, we're just going to go through the terms and I'm going to show you a chart. The next sphere is what? Yeah. Bina. You can imagine that after eight, nine hundred years of Jews thinking about this, that it's got quite complex. But Bina. It means understanding. And yet, because once we have an initial spark, that gets unpacked and developed. Initial realization moves into a phase of understanding. These are all intellectual faculties. Yeah? Keter, the notion of will to create something, the Chochmah might be the, the essential kernel of wisdom of how we're going to do this. Bina is like you might be drawing up the more detailed plans, but nothing has yet been put into actual imminentized effect. Yeah? Chesed is the next one. What's the meaning of the word chesed? Benevolence. Benevolence. Kindness, benevolence. But it's a concept of outflow. Yep. When I give something to someone, that's an act of chesed. I mean, unless I'm giving them punishment, but you know, you know, it's an act of kindness, benevolence. It's outflow. Kabbalistically, we do not specifically understand this necessarily in terms of kindness per se, but all acts of of outward flow are chesed. Charity is an act of chesed. But chesed is not defined by charity. The next one is? Correct. Gevurah. Now the word gevurah means might. By the way, these actual terms are found in the Bible. They are taken from a verse in Chronicles. 
Gevura means. What does Gevura mean? In modern Hebrew, in modern Hebrew, Gevura means bravery. Certainly, the root of the word Gimel Bet Resh has to do with all acts of macho bravado. You will even hear the expression, ah, hugever, right? Meaning hugever. What does it mean hugever in contemporary Hebrew? It means if someone is a gever, it means what? They're a real man. They're a man. Ah, gever. But that's not what gevura means. It's often translated as might. God is called a gibor. Ish gibor, a mighty man. In other words, gevura is might. Sometimes also translated as severity. Kabbalistically, we understand Gevura as the opposite of Chesed. Listen very carefully. Do not get confused to what I'm about to say. Who is familiar with Pirkei Avot? Who is familiar with Pirkei Avot? In the fourth chapter of Pirkei Avot, it opens, in the Mishnahic tractate of Pirkei Avot, it opens with the words, it's actually the statement of Ben Zoma, who is wise, yeah, who is wealthy, who is mighty, Ezehu Gibor, who is mighty, and who is mighty? Outstanding, Gary, outstanding. I want to come around there and give you a kiss. I won't, but outstanding. I'll tell you what he said. I'll tell you what he said. Ezehu Gibor, says the Mishnah, Hakovesh et Yitzro. Someone who conquers his inclination. In other words, Gevura is seen as a quality of restraint, a quality of limitation. Self-control, Self limitation, restraint, which is the opposite of Chesed. Chesed is outpouring. Gevura is limitation. Everybody follow? I have not arranged these in a pattern yet. We're just listing them in order. Chesed and Gvura become harmonized, harmonized in the following sphera, which is called, if I drew a, draw a vowel as a capital, it's because it's an aleph. Tiferet. Tiferet is the harmony of Gvura and Chesed. It will not surprise you to find that the color of Chesed is white, the color of Gvura is red, and the color of Tiferet is pink. Now, one way in which we understand this, how creative processes come into being, is by way a very, very banal analogy. A very banal analogy of traffic. Yeah? Green lights are go. Everybody likes green lights. Yeah? Everybody likes green lights. Let's represent green lights as chesed. Yeah? And red lights are stop. Everybody hates red lights. Yeah? Red lights could be gvura, the concept of stop. But if all lights were green, it would be mayhem. And if all lights were red, nothing would move. We need the harmony of both to create what we call traffic, yeah? 
So if we think of that very banal analogy, we need We need in the creative process. We need outpouring, outflow, and we need structure and limitation to contain it and to channel it in the right way and to limit it according to what is required. Yes? Sometimes gvura is referred to as the concept of din. I mentioned last week, did I not, that the famous Midrash about how God wanted to create the world with din, he saw it wouldn't survive, he had to add chesed and so on. Tiferet is that harmony. Then we've got, very quickly, another triad, which is Netzach. Netzach means eternity, victory. This is already the right. The, the this is already huh, a level of engagement with the reality. I'm going to go through these quickly. Hod and if that represents uh, the vav and. Yesod, which means foundation. And then everything ending up in the tenth sphere. Don't worry, I know I've gone through these quickly. We'll come back to them in a second. Everything else ending up in the tenth sphere, which is Malchut. What's the meaning of Malchut? Kingdom. We start with the crown and we end up with the kingdom. Everything about the crown everything about the kingdom is symbolized in the crown. But the crown is only a symbol of the full realization that happens in Malchut. Everybody follow? Now, I'm going to hand out a chart, which is a chart of the Sfirot. Right? Pass this down. Have a look. Let's see how quickly we can pass this down, because we're running out of time. Has everybody got a copy of this? Can you see here? Now, I could draw this on the board. Don't worry about the channels connecting them. What I want you to see, what I want you to see is the basic pattern of the Sfirot. I'm going to draw that pattern very quickly on the board, very quickly and roughly, so that I can show you. What can we notice about that arrangement? Is there anything, apart from the fact that we, it is divided into lines, three lines. So we have in fact a right hand side, a left hand side, and a middle. Yep. The right-hand side are the Sfirot of outflow. Sorry? The left-hand side is the side, more or less, of the left-hand side, limitation. And the middle side path is the, is the middle path. But what else do we notice about this shape? There's male and female aspects. The right-hand side is male. The left-hand side is female, as we look at it. On the one hand, it's a tree, but on the other hand, it's something else. What sort of animal? Hello. The Sfirot are Dmut Adam. They are the image of the human. Keter is the head overall, but Chokhmah and Bina are the intellectual faculty, as is Da'at. Chesed is the right arm. Gvura is the left arm. The Sfirot 
of the Svila of Tiferet represents the trunk of the body. Netzach is the right leg. Hod is the left leg. And Yesod is the sexual organ. And Malchut is the feminine. This is representing male creative energy, the divine as represented in male creative energy, which is that which gives form. But the matter on which it is impressed is also divine, which was represented as malchut. The female also has a yesod. It's not just the male. Yesod can be represented as the phallus, but it's not just the male that has the yesod. The female has yesod. But in a general representation of the sfirot, the top nine are the masculine creative potentialities. The female is, the malchut is female. Now, bear in mind that all of humanity, Kabbalistically, is female. This may come as a shock to you, but you're not really who you think you are. <laughs> and when you look in the mirror, that's not really what you look like and it's not really who you are. You are, in fact, your body is just a corporeal interface. This structure of the Sfirot does not look like this because it is a reified version of humanity. Humans look like we do because we are a microcosmic reification of divine potentiality in creation. This is what the divine looks like if you were to refract divine energy into a corporeal reality like this one. This is what humans, who are the apex of creation, what their form represents. Our form represents divine creativity. You are not your, you are not your body. Your body is a corporeal interface. Just like Let's say, for example, to pick another banal illustration, a radio, yeah? An old-fashioned radio. What is actually the radio? It's the transistor. The box with the nice grilly patterns and the logo and all the rest of it, that's just the interface. In fact, I'd go even further and say that it's not even the housing of the transistor, it's something else. But you are, your body is just your body. What you really are, what you really are, is a neshama. You are a soul. And all neshamot are feminine. Sometimes you'll come into this world as a male. Sometimes you'll come in as a female. And interestingly enough, what did they discover? What did they discover in 19th and 20th century embryonics? What did they discover? That we're all, all embryos are female until a certain point in gestation where the XY chromosome kicks in and we become, certain, certain of us become male. Yeah? But the default condition of humanity is female. Malchut. The Jewish people are the female in relation to the divine. That's Knesset Israel. 
but we are Dukhra, we are the male creative potentiality in relation to the rest of the world. This is a whole hierarchy of form and matter, form and matter, form and matter. I'm not talking now science, ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking Kabbalah. I'm not saying that it conflicts with science, I'm just saying we're talking Kabbalistically. Right? And we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. Now, all of this was to explain the Sephirotic system that evolves that we first see evident in the Bahir. What I was going to do today was just talk about that by way of prelude, because what I really wanted to talk about was the Zohar. But you can't understand the Zohar without the Ten Sephirot, because what the Zohar does, it takes the Ten Sephirot as an underlying symbolic and creative system of reality and applies it to the Torah. So it becomes dynamic, it becomes cosmic, and not just the Torah, but the Torah as a blueprint for history. We are living out the cosmic drama of the Sfirot. God immanentized in the world is which sphira? Keter. Malchud is us. When we talk about the Holy One, blessed be He, which sphira is the Kabbalist telling us represents that? Tiferet. Which Biblical figure do the Kabbalists see as representing Tiferet? Jacob. I think it's on the chart. Nice one. On the side, on the right hand side, he's got the listings for Tiferet, the symbolicals. Now, bearing in mind, bearing in mind that this is taken, I took this chart and Leah photocopied this chart from the first volume of Danny Matt's translation of the Zohar. This is the first volume of 12. And so obviously Danny Matt's done a chart of the Sfirot and he's written a few of the symbolic equivalences next to them. Yep. But this is a very limiting, limited uh, representation of those equivalences. What the Zohar does, it takes the underlying framework of the Sfirot and dynamically interprets the Torah according to them to show the relationship of the people of Israel and the divine. When does the Zohar emerge? And this was going to be a question that I was going to ask and pose to you about 10 or 15 minutes into the first half of this talk. <laughs> and we have only just arrived there. So I want to hold that question because do not walk away from this talk thinking that you have understood what it is that I want to communicate about the Zohar. I wanted to communicate simply that thinking about dvekut and light and a great and, uh, and, and the influence of Neoplatonism and emanation theory emerges in Provence in the 12th century in the book Bahir and the whole formulation of the Sfirot. But that's only the beginning of a very long and phenomenal intellectual and mystical journey that we've taken with the Sfirot. And I'm going, because even the Zohar is just the beginning of that journey, but I'm going to continue talking about that next week. So thank you for listening.
thank you for listening. To find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.